you know, a new right, such as the right to, right to truth, have been adumbrated as a consequence of um, transitional justice practices. Um, and I think it's, but it's this question around it, um, it's um, losing its analytical power. Um, and I think it's slightly been a victim of its own success because it's come to be applied now to a whole host of um, reflective justice practices that are happening in contexts that are not remotely transitional in any recognisable sense. Um, for example, Spain, and where there are, and this has always been the case though, where there are contests over what constitutes justice. So um, I just want to put that aside, I had to get that off my chest. Um, <laughs> I feel a lot better now, thanks for listening. <laughs> um, and I think this, this invitation actually forced me to reflect again on that, that particular problem. Um, but also it forced me to think about the ways in which um, a lot of my past work has really been concerned with the sociology of knowledge. Um, and I think, um, although that hasn't been an something I've explicitly spoken about, I suppose, um, but I think it's well-placed to speak to some of the questions that frame your seminar series. And I did have a look at the, um, the outline that was, that was produced, really interesting, um, the, the ESRC um, proposal that you put in. And I picked up a couple of questions there that I think this paper um, speaks to. And the first is um, this question of, and this is something you've been exploring now, what are the ways of knowing about serious violations and harm? Um, and this paper um, focuses on the emergence of a specific field of knowledge, particularly forensic anthropology, in the establishment of knowledge about violations and looks at some of the consequences of its application. So that's the way in which the paper speaks to that question. The second question um, you posed is what are the current methodologies used to research transitional justice? Um, and I thought I'd just kind of front load and, and spell out the kinds of methodologies I've used in this paper. They are combined, um, as it's usually the way I work. Um, the first approach um, is a kind of historical genealogical approach um, where I'm interested in the emergence, the historical um, social and political constitution of um, particular fields of knowledge um, and, and as I said forensic anthropology in particular. Um, a second method that I've used is um, an analysis of professional methods and claims. So I've looked at um, training manuals in forensic anthropology um, and a lot of the professional literature that situates forensic anthropology um, in relationship to human rights investigations. So um, what I've done there is a kind of discourse analysis in order to um, extract or taxonomise certain themes in relationship to human rights work. Um, and the third um, approach, if you like, is um, the application of theoretical frameworks drawn from science and technology studies in sociology. I don't know if any of you are familiar with these. As a way of accessing the agency of material artifacts, I've been really interested in materiality in human rights. Um, and so looking at human remains, bones, legal documents, um, and looking at the way um, artifacts, materiality interacts so agency is being located somewhere else other than the human. So that is another thing that I've been interested in, and that's where the, the STS um, literature really helps me. Um, so I'm interested in materiality and the arbitration of the past, what I would call the political dimension, and the investigation of atrocity, the moral human rights dimension. So it's about stuff in the world, um, and that's something that I'm going to be um, following up, I think, as a consequence of, of, of writing this paper. Um, 
All of this really has been put together um, with the aim, as with most of my work, to um, challenge some of the cherished meta-narratives of this thing called transitional justice, um, partly to demonstrate its ideological performance, that is to say, what it permits and what it forecloses. Um, so this is, you know, this is a key area that I'm interested in. Um, and if any of you are interested in following this up, a version of this paper was just published a few days ago in Social and Legal Studies, so you can go and um, have a look at it there. Um, and obviously there's a lot more detail. It's actually probably the longest paper I've written. Um, there's a lot more detail than I'm going to be able to um, render here. So, um, okay, so that's how I'm speaking to you at the themes of your series. Um, when I started writing this piece of research, I did so in quite a frustrated mood because I'd been trying to leave transitional justice behind for some time and um, I kept being drawn back in and what drew me back in at this point in time was the fact that I think I'd been ignoring something really important for a while and this was um, the central significance of the dead in the politics of the past. Um, and of course they're there, sure, in everything I read and everything I write. Um, but I think in many ways, um, in the sort of central literature and transitional justice, they didn't seem to be made fully present. Um, and this is how I became interested in the power of human remains um, and um, have tried to capture the power of human remains by looking at human remains as boundary objects with agency. And this is something that I'm going to be um, drawing out a bit um, further down. Um, the line in the paper. This is what I'm drawing from the science and technology studies literature, the idea of human remains as boundary objects with agency. Um, through that interest I came to um, chart the rise of um, forensic anthropology as one particular branch of forensics that has interest in human remains and human rights. Um, and um, when I started doing this work, I realised that um, forensic anthropology was making p particular claims that were really recognisable to those of us who are engaging with transitional justice, but they seem to almost echo or chime um, very intimately with those in, in the field of transitional politics. Um, and what I found is that this branch of um, forensics is really intimately tied to um, the specific historically constituted set of political um, conditions and ethical imperatives, the same ones that have shrouded um, the appearance of transitional justice. Um, and forensic anthropology is roughly coterminous temporally with um, the appearance of transitional justice, and I think this is important. Um, and what I'm interested in is the ways in which forensics, um, forensic anthropology, um, seeks to settle scientifically particular claims within the social, political and legal fields within which it's operated. So it claims a particular kind of authority that is outside of these fields. And I you know, came at this by saying, well, you know, how, how far outside of these fields is, is this um, branch of, of, of scientific knowledge? Um, and that's where um, the value of historicising the emergence of that field um, becomes apparent. So that's kind of rough introduction to the area that I'm going to talk about, but I probably would help if I am um, clearer about how I'm bringing all these aspects together and to what effect. Um, so my argument is that um, forensic anthropology makes a set of professional claims and um, I've identified these, taxonomised these as scientific, probative, humanitarian, historical, political and deterrent. So those are the six claims, I'm going to go into them in more detail later. So it makes a set of professional claims, scientifically and objectively, 
um, in order to um, settle social and political contest and interpretations of past violence. I'll just give you a very simple preliminary um, example. One of the arguments that's been made about the power of forensic work um, is that, and I'm quoting here, science can serve history by protecting it from revisionists. This is really powerful. Science can serve history by protecting it from revisionists. Um, this is from a piece of work by um, Mercedes Doretti, who's um, worked in the Argentinian forensic anthropology team, um, and Clyde Snow, um, about more later, about him later, I'll say a little more. Um, but I think this, this idea, if we amplify this a little bit, scientific methods are claimed to settle questions of social and political consequence, and in turn, as we'll see, underscore the legitimacy, on the basis of their objective status, of the processes of recounting the past or accounting for the past that deploy them. Okay, so it's a kind of source of authority that is outside the political um, and social domain. So what I want to argue against that claim is that um, these kinds of assertions really do conceal a range of contests and conflicts around the significance of human remains. Um, and what I do is show how um, forensic work is embedded within a network of artifacts, actors and institutions that have different stakes in interpretations of the past. Okay, so it has a lot of, there's a, there are interests um, that cross professional, social, political um, spheres, and they all have a different, um, the past is differently significant, they have a different sort of purchase on the past. Um, and this is why I put um, conflicts over human remains, I posit them as boundary objects, um, in which a number of overlapping communities are differently invested. And this is where the conflicts emerge, because they want to interpret human remains differently. Um, and what I show um, in the paper is that um, forensic truths don't actually settle the past, which is against the claims that they make, um, but take their place within um, a variety of interpretations by which past violence is renegotiated and reinterpreted in ways that are actually perhaps quite surprising at times um, and certainly conflicted and also unpredictable. So this is the, the, the kind of um, richer side of the paper. So what I'm going to do, um, that was quite a long preamble, what I'm going to do is um, just the scheme of the paper. Um, how long do I have? Mm, about another half hour. Yeah, it's okay. Do my best. Um, the, the first thing I'm going to do is give you a very short snapshot of the rise of forensic knowledge in politics and humanitarianism. Um, so that um, very brief historical backdrop. And then I want to look at some of the core claims um, that are made by um, forensic anthropologists in relationship to human rights and transitional political issues. And the third thing I'm going to do is raise this question, do bones have politics, um, to look at um, how human remains work as boundary objects. And I want to amplify that particular question um, with reference to two empirical areas. The first is um, the intersection of forensic knowledge with legal knowledge. Um, and I'm going to look at the interaction of human remains with um, legal artifact, in particular the Genocide Convention. Uh, so this is artifacts in relationship to one another, what one artifact, uh, this is where the kind of the agency of artifacts becomes most visible, I think, in, in that case. Um, and the second area, I'm going to look at um, the performance of forensic knowledge and practice in relationship to social claims for justice. And the case there is exhumations and their contestation in Argentina. So two quite different areas I'm going to use for illustration. So the first um, part, um, this question of um, forensic knowledge in politics and humanitarianism. Um, I think the rise of, of, of forensic 
um, knowledge um, within um, the political spheres and within um, the context of humanitarian work, really from the early 1980s onwards, is indebted to the way in which um, the dead have become centrally significant to the politics of the past in the search for justice and accountability, um, in transitions to democracy, and the reconfiguration of national identity. I think we mustn't forget this, sometimes this is forgotten, that's built on, I think, the acknowledgement of past shame rather than past virtue. And I see this as a bit of a paradigm shift in the making of nations. Um, the past, you know, by contrast with the past, if you like, is acknowledged to be a source of shame and repentant reflection rather than a source of glory, conquest and virtue. So we're getting a different sort of model of the nation emerging here through um, these practices. And a key example here is that of Spain, which is currently um, disinterring and has been for the last decade, um, clandestine civil war graves in an attempt to revise the history of the Civil War and to do justice, of course, to those killed. Um, Spain, of course, doesn't really neatly map on to this um, virtue-to-shame paradigm, as um, the Civil War had been re-narrated post-Franco as Spain's tragedy, which implies an absence of human agency, and that was also um, that um, tragedy narrative was also bound up with um, the failure, um, the lack of political will, the um, um, the fact that. Um, there was no calling, no accountability um, process post-Franco. Um, um, this, of course, is currently being addressed by the memory laws um, and the disinterrals that are, are going on now. Um, okay, so the importance of the dead to political life. This is one sort of um, backdrop to the rise of forensic knowledge. Um, and I think the um, emergence of forensic um, knowledge and expertise and its wide proliferation since the 1980s, I don't have time to go into that but there's quite a bit of detail on that in the paper, represents a particularly powerful and relatively recent human rights regime which is predicated on its ability to um, finalise disputes about past atrocity through its appeal to scientism. So this is something that's distinctive, um, this is something that's quite different from other models of revealing the truth about the past that have been um, really common and central to um, transitional justice, yet have not received the same kind of attention that other models have. I'll speak about the other models later. Catherine Verdery puts it like this. She says, if one wants to revise the past, it's comforting to have actual bones to hand. Right. So this is also kind of um, testimony to the ways in which humour remains actually speak a kind of truth of their own. Um, that's indisputable in some way. And of course we have, um, well the title of the, the article that I wrote is Interpreters of the Dead, Forensic Experts um, Seeing Themselves as Interpreters of the Dead. Um, and this was a quote actually I got from, um, uh, I think it was a Peruvian forensic anthropologist who was working in um, the DRC. Um, and it was an interview with him um, when he was in uncovering evidence of, of, of mass atrocities there, interpreters of the dead. It's comforting to have actual bones to hand. So the inauguration, this is important I think, the inauguration, professionalisation and the spread of forensic anthropology in investigations of past political violence is coterminous with the set of political and legal conditions within and due to which the field has flourished. Now, the, the larger backdrop, of course, is the acceleration of human rights and humanitarian law in the post-1945 period. Um, that's crucial because, of course, forensics generally, as um, a field of sciences, is harnessed to the law. 
this is the purpose, forensic work is done, is, is in the service of law. The second um, um, thing to point out is um, in this emergence of, of forensic anthropology is this distinctive set of political transitions from authoritarianism um, and or conflict in which there have been widespread attempts to establish responsibility for state and war crimes, obviously in Latin America since the early 80s, post-Cold War transitions in um, Eastern Europe since 1989, South Africa's um, paradigmatic transition from apartheid in 94, which have been accompanied by um, a host of new justice institutions, truth commissions, war crime war crimes tribunals, ad hoc and permanent ones, have accompanied these shifts. So they've had an institutional expression too. But alongside that, we've seen family and victim groups, humanitarian organizations, um, and so on. So there's been a broader um, social push for investigating the past. Um, and these also regularly call upon forensic anthropologists to assist with the recovery and identification of human remains. Those of you who are familiar with the Spanish case, um, and actually it was in the early days of the um, Argentinian case as well, will be aware um, that it was families of the, the disappeared, families of the war dead, who um, originally appealed to help from um, forensic anthropologists. In Spain was interesting because it was the Guatemalans who went to Spain in a kind of inversion of the colonial relationship and started um, digging up um, the graves in the, in the Basque region. Um, so the families and, and the social movements around this have also been incredibly important. Um, and a third um, uh, aspect of, of, of this broader context is the way in which um, the rise of forensic anthropology and human rights is embedded within a new clustering of professional organisations with a pioneering interest in the application of science and technology to human rights from the 1970s onwards, or from the late 70s, around 77. Um, we've got the American Association for the Advancement of Science, which created a special programme, um, Science and Human Rights Programme, which was mandated um, to engage scientists and scientific tools to enhance and advance human rights work, so that was one strand. And then the Minnesota Protocol, later adopted by the UN, which outlined scientific methods, specifically forensic ones, for investigating crimes against humanity. Now the reason why I've picked out forensic anthropology, as opposed to you know other forensic techniques that I might have looked at, is because it was forensic anthropology that developed as a particular branch of forensics at this time. Um, and it was the one branch of forensics that became most closely associated with human rights investigations. And this is because its techniques of analysis, um, osteo, what's called osteobiography, um, which is about reading and identifying human remains, um, primarily bones because they deal with um, human remains that have um, degraded to the point where um, it's mainly the skeleton that, it, that is left and there's no tissue. This is where the forensic anthropologists usually come in. Other forensic experts deal with, with tissue. Um, so the, their techniques of analysis really answered to some of the questions that were being raised in the transitional context in which it was deployed. Who were the dead and disappeared? How had they died? So this question of osteobiography, literally writing the biography of the human remains, um, became part of the um, approach to identifying the dead literally um, individual identifications, so that's one side of it, who, who is this person. But also it was about identifying um, broader patterns of violence, partly by an analysis of those identities as 
social identity, so we'll come on to this um, in a bit when I look at the, the Genocide Convention, um, and also establishing the causes of death by analysing trauma to the human remains. So that's another area that forensic anthropologists specialise in, so um, trauma to human remains. Um, and these um, techniques became central to investigations of mass atrocities in this period. So what's really interesting to me is um, the way in which um, this particular forensic knowledge technique emerged at the intersection of these various and actually relatively distinct pathways of development. So forensic anthropology comes about um, where these things cross. right? And in um, the case of this particular field, the critical context um, was the identification of Argentine as thousands disappeared, um, where forensic anthropologist Clyde Snow, he's the person who I attribute the, the, the revisionist um, quote earlier to, um, Clyde Snow was famous for his identification of um, Mengele's skull, for those of you who don't know. Um, he was invited both by um, the Mothers of the Disappeared in Argentina and also by the New Truth Commission, which had been set up in 1983, to assist with the recovery and identification of the disappeared in Argentina. So he went to Argentina um, and trained a local group of forensic anthropologists um, and that group went on to train numerous other forensic anthropology teams in diverse situations um, elsewhere beyond Argentina. So really the knowledge and the expertise developed in that context travelled and fueled a wider epistemic community. So that case is, is really critical, it's a really important one. So that's kind of that's some of the backdrop there. This question of acceleration of human rights, humanitarian law in the post-45 period, um, this distinctive set of political um, transitions um, from the 80s onwards, um, and the rise of forensic anthropology and human rights in relationship to the turn of science to um, human rights. Those are the three distinctive things that are kind of feeding into the emergence of forensic anthropology as a distinctive field at that time. So this is important because when we come to looking at the, um, um, the face of the field, which I'm going to do, do now, you can see how closely um, they mirror um, these particular um, historical influences. So what I did, um, as I mentioned earlier, um, I'm, I'm going to look at the, um, this pattern of the face of the field now was to look, I, I conducted an extensive reading of the professional training manuals um, and the professional publications that are really dedicated to um, applying these techniques to human rights investigations in order to identify or taxonomise um, these faiths that I think are intrinsically interesting to understand the way in which forensics plays into the politics of the past. And what I found, as I mentioned, is the echo in these professional texts, in these scientific texts, of the political conditions within which the professionalization of forensic anthropology has emerged. And those conditions have shaped the science itself. So this is where I get at this question of science not having an, an authority that's external to the field. Okay, I'm trying to show that this particular science has an authority that's thoroughly predicated on um, its field location. Um, uh, so I've, I've, what I've done is taxonomise them into six key um, claims. So the first is scientific, and I'm going to be using some quotes from the um, training manuals here and the, and the professional um, literature. Um, the idea here is that science has the power to provide an objective perspective on the crimes of the past, 
to furnish courts with objective and scientific evidence crucial for conviction of those responsible for the crimes. This is all fairly straightforward, I think. But the idea here is that um, science takes the issues out of public debate and contestation and places it in, or them, in the indisputable scientific realm, which is, at least this is how this language performs, um, claims to be prior to questions of the political and the social. So this is where the claim of it being an external authority um, comes in. A second um, faith of the field is probative. So the idea here is that um, the, the work that forensic anthropologists do um, by uncovering legally admissible evidence that could result in convictions, of course, um, but also more broad, broadly contribute to strengthening judicial institutions by providing new tools to uphold the rule of law and further, this is really hubristic actually, I think, to um, make significant contributions to the international justice system. So what's interesting here is that um, the science claims itself to be furnishing the legitimacy of judicial institutions, which of course in the context of political transitions is a task urgently needed. Who's going to argue with that? Of course these things are important, but what I want to show is how they're actually embedded within the, the context um, that have, have produced it. Um, so this is a task that's urgently needed, um, but it's a task that's claimed to be amplified and transmitted to courts with universal jurisdiction. So this is where the science plays into um, these other legal and political realms. Now a third um, claim of the field, this was something I was particularly interested in as well because um, I don't know, some of you might have read a piece I wrote a few years ago on um, therapeutic ideas in war and reconciliation. Um, and the, the, the sort of therapeutic ethos within transitional justice is something that's long interested me. So this third faith, the humanitarian um, faith, um, there's this idea that um, forensics provides, and I'm quoting here again, a unique humanitarian service to provide solace to families by finding the remains of dead relatives. This question of solace is something I'm going to unpick in a bit with reference to the, the question of Argentina and, quote, to help families end their painful quests and heal the wounds caused by cruel uncertainty by locating the remains of the disappeared whose fates had not hitherto been properly established. And here I think we see the, the ramifications of what um, became a very powerful claim of um, a therapeutic claim of transitional justice, especially after the case of South Africa. Um, so we get science in the service of humanitarianism via its therapeutic power, the whole idea that um, it can heal wounds. I think one thing that's interesting here, it's just occurred to me, I think I've been thinking about this for a few days, is the way in which this implies some kind of emotional teleology. Um, and this is something actually, um, I did some work on reparations in Argentina, and I was interested in, I suppose, the immediate and then the longer term emotional reactions to um, reparative efforts. And I suppose the assumption here is that um, this kind of therapeutic activity will um, stop the pain and will stop people's search for the truth about the past. I think this is not actually evident and that over time we get different kinds of emotional, we want to call them emotional, reactions. So it's, uh, this is connected to this question of, you know, it's no, by no means evident to me that um, truth will settle calls for justice because once we know about what happened 
calls for justice may follow. So if we're thinking about the kind of emotional life that these processes set in train, I think we might be kind of taking partial snapshots if we assume that this will be settled at this point. If we return the remains to the family, then that's the end of the story, nothing more will happen, they will, you know, they will want no more. Um, so I think it's quite interesting to think about the emotional ecology around these kinds of, of processes. Okay, so the fourth claim, the fourth faith of the, the field is historical. So going back to this, this quote that I used at the beginning, the power of forensic anthropology to, quote, set the historical record straight, to, quote, reconstruct distorted or hidden histories, to make sure the historical record is correct, and so on. Um, and of course, this is connected to the first claim about the power of science to take disputes out of the arena of contestation, um, to settle historical debates once and for all, to militate against historical revisionism, all of course important because it, it kind of invokes underneath it the kind of dangerous revisionism that might well inspire, provoke or underpin further conflict. So of course this is also connected to, this question of revisionism is connected to um, the ways in which the past is unpicked um, by parties, by political elites at particular points in time and used to fuel further conflict. We only have to look at the um, case of the, the former Yugoslavia to see some um, illustration of that particular um, claim. And the fifth claim um, is a political claim. Um, this is really interesting, I think. Forensic anthropologists claim to facilitate political change and judicial reform, which is connected to it. Um, and, and I'm quoting, to strengthen democratic institutions by providing new tools to uphold the rule of law and to, I think this is also interesting, impact on a range of political constituencies, including national leaders, the international community, or citizens of the world who might have looked the other way. So this question of um, rebuilding political institutions and also appealing to those who might have looked the other way, this is, you know, these different political constituencies. And I think there are two things at work in, in that particular claim. One is um, a claim about the power of science to install democracy, and the other is about the power of science to break political denial on the one hand, so it's about um, you know, um, national leaders, but the other is about um, breaking denial. Again, some of you will be familiar with um, Stan Cohen's work on denial. Um, which is about this question of distant suffering. It is no longer possible to ignore because we now know that this, this and this happened. So going back to the kinds of questions that are also raised by Boltanski in his work on, on distant suffering and, and, and Stan Cohen in his work on denial. So I think that's a really, that's quite a juicy one. That's a really interesting um, claim that's being made there. Um, and the sixth claim is a claim about deterrence. Um, and this is a final recurrent claim in the professional literature, which is um, about the ways in which um, this kind of forensic work facilitates the deterrence of future violations through forensic documentation and litigation, so obtaining judicial redress um, for criminal activity. And of course this is also a common faith in international human rights law that's been taken up by the forensic knowledge community, deterrence. It's written into the Genocide Convention, for example, this question that, um, you know, more law is the answer um, and more law will equal, equal um, more deterrence. So, What's fascinating to me is the way in which um, these six distinctive faiths 
have entered into and really imprinted the ways in which atrocity investigations are evidenced, argued and arbitrated. And what um, unites those um, claims is the recourse to science to settle otherwise contested versions of history, politics and social life. And yet, these themes are themselves contingent, as I hope to have made evident. Um, and they've been generated within the emergence of a science that is intimately entwined and not separate from the kinds of politics and histories it claims to authorise. So whilst it claims a kind of Archimedean point from which to arbitrate disputes about the past, it is instead embedded within the political processes which it claims to settle. And I'm sure as I was reading through those faiths, you will recognise those from the transitional justice literature. I mean, they're almost identical to the kinds of things that um, TJ entrepreneurs claim. Um, you can't, you know, you just recognise immediately the language. There's nothing um, different about it. I mean, it's just so um, redolent of the, the kinds of um, um, truths that are, have been generated um, from within the field. So, um, I want to move on to this question of whether bones have politics. And um, this issue of whether human remains constitute objective traces of past violence, I've probably already answered that, but we'll have some illustration. Um, or whether they, um, in fact, are subject to um, the kinds of interpretations that they claim to resist. So this is where I'm interested in human remains as boundary objects in the politics of the past um, and the way in which um, human remains really sit at the intersection of different social worlds in which diverse parties, legal, forensic, humanitarian, um, political, social um, and familial groups are differently invested. And the reason why I think human remains are so powerful is because they occupy the intersection between and they cross and constitute and negotiate a complex set of boundaries, um, including, this is probably not an exhaustive list, but when you hear this, you'll see how kind of expansive this is. Uh, an expansive set of boundaries between family and nation, between past and present, between violence and justice, between authoritarianism and democracy, between memory and commemoration, between denial and truth. This is huge. These kind of lie at the center of all of these sort of huge cross-cutting themes in transitional justice. And these are the themes sort of writ large um, with which the field of transitional justice really since the mid 90s has been grappling. Um, and so I think, you know, we can say that um, there's a lot at stake in the interpretation of human remains. Um, they're not a kind of, they're not a peripheral matter. And so the process of trying to reach some kind of consensus about um, what human remains mean um, and some kind of consensus about past atrocity, um, that process really engages multiple actors who participate from the perspective of different social and professional worlds. For example, human rights professional diagnosing political violence will do so um, you know, within the framework of gross violations of human rights. This is technical language. I trend to try and avoid that and speak instead of um, atrocity or violence. Okay, so calling attention to the kind of technical frameworks we use. So human rights professional will use that technical discourse because it is derived from law. 
Um, and, and somebody coming from that perspective will do so in a different way from the politician who's concerned with establishing democratic order and whose concern is with political legitimacy. So there'll be a different framework for um, understanding the past and the significance of human remains within that. Um, so just to illustrate some of these conflicts, I'm going to move on to um, um, a couple of examples. Of, and, and these hopefully show how um, scientific or forensic expertise doesn't really trump scientifically other interpretations of human remains, um, which is you know what it's claiming. Um, so I think these um, these two cases um, actually show this in action. Um, and so what um, the examples do is to show how forensic interpretations enter into and interact with other interpretations that both conflict with forensic work and actually refuse the settlement of the past that forensics aims to achieve. So we've got um, two examples. One is um, hu shows human remains at the intersection of science and law um, and um, human remains at the intersection of politics and social justice, so those two um, spheres. And the first um, example is concerned with the racialization of human remains, so the identificatory practices. Um, that are inherent to doing forensic anthropological work um, and also that um, the identificatory practices that are necessary in deciphering whether these kinds of atrocities that are being investigated are of a particular order, i.e. whether they are genocide or not. Um, and so, as we know, um, Human rights, humanitarian law has a number of conventions, artifacts of legal reasoning at its disposal in deciphering and establishing the crimes of state. The Genocide Convention is the one with the most historic and moral power. And again, I don't need to tell you this, but um, just to go through this, um, requires, of course, that in order for mass killing to be um, considered to be genocide, the victims must be proven to belong to a social group. Um, and have been targeted on the basis of their social identity. Um, so Article 2 of the Convention defines genocide as acts committed with intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnical, racial or religious group as such. So what that text um, provides, that legal artefact, so this is again raising this question of materiality, so <coughs> looking at legal artefacts as um, materiality, material sort of traces of human rights thinking, administration, and so on. That legal text provides one framework um, requiring forensic anthropologists to read what a social construct, such as, and in particular, race, back into human remains in order to reconstruct a story that confirms or disconfirms the occurrence of genocide. And this imperative um, presents <coughs> huge problems for forensic anthropologists. Um, and it's widely noted in the professional literature. There are all sorts of little asides about, you know, sometimes the law requires us to make this or that kind of reading. And we're a bit uncomfortable about this, frankly, because as a profession, we have a different sort of sense or understanding of what it is to um, read identity um, biologically. Okay, so this is really interesting when you read through. You, you see this argument going on. It's a kind of current through the through the literature. Um, and one um, of the um, training manuals that I read by NAFTA 
notes that forensic anthropologists are obligated, so they, they sort of um, express this as an obligation, obligated by law to assign a racial identity to unknown remains. That falls in line with the current legal, social and political definitions of race. And so what's interesting is the way in which forensic anthropologists kind of deflect this imperative. Um, and they suggest that the imperative to read race biologically into the human remains comes from sources outside of the scientific profession, which itself expresses a kind of discomfort with this imperative. So it's quite interesting. There's this way of, you know, playing the game and doing the work, but also distant that you know they distance themselves from the work that they have to do because it presents some kinds of tensions with their own professional imperative and ethical imperatives. That's really important also to note. Um, I think that discomfort is a bit disingenuous. And the reason for this is that law doesn't simply provide a framework within which forensic anthropology is made to speak. Forensic anthropology, of course, is closely related to physical and biological anthropology and shares techniques of analysis with those fields, which include techniques of reading race into human remains. And the contemporary um, professional manuals are replete with a set of techniques for this purpose, identifying craniofacial traits, for example. Um, and these techniques are much more familiar to the raciological sciences of the 19th century. And what um, their kind of reproduction represents a kind of deposited residue of those sciences, which interacts in the present with legal frameworks of knowledge. So I think. Um, this residue, which is lodged in contemporary professional practices, puts the field at odds with that of the broader um, contemporary anthropological endeavour to put race under critical scrutiny. And again, there are all sorts of asides within the literature, you know, okay, the regular anthropologists wouldn't like us doing this, right? There's that kind of debate going on there um, for obvious reasons. Um, and certainly forensic anthropologists have been criticised by other anthropologists for um, upholding the race concept whenever they estimate the race of a skeleton. Um, but again, I mean, it comes back to this, this really interesting self-positioning here where forensic anthropology is simultaneously kind of defensive and critically distanced from um, these aspects of its practice and maintains that the practical assignment of race to a skeleton is not of indication of their intellectual subscription to the biological basis of race. Um, and they just you know, express this as an obliga obligation through law to make this kind of um, assertion. So I think what, that, um, what I'm trying to get at here is the agency of things in relationship to one another. So I'm looking at the legal convention interacting with the human remains and then interpretations of human remains. So we're looking at stuff in relationship, materiality in relationship, and the kinds of readings um, uh, that materials um, bring, into, um, bring into view. Um, and what that example illustrates is the interaction of law and science in the legal attempt to racialize human remains. And it demonstrates the kinds of tensions that the one, the legal, deposits in the other, the scientific. Okay, so that's um, that bit. And I think what's interesting is the way in which um, the, the two artifacts, human remains and legal texts, are made to speak and interact and produce problematic consequences for the scientificity of forensic knowledge itself. 
So far from forensics sort of speaking from outside of these frameworks, it has to speak from within. And not only does it speak from within, but it has to accept that there are certain compromises entailed in speaking from um, within that framework. Um, and I think what it, it shows is the ways in which forensic um, professionals find ways of negotiating those consequences in order to make their work service the law, but also to um, simultaneously maintain a kind of distance from these legal frameworks of knowledge because it creates all sorts of ethical problems for um, the kind of work that they do. And that negotiation enables, though, to some degree, those two communities of practice to cooperate and to speak to one another without the one being fully subsumed within the schema of the other. And this is um, speaking to the work on boundary objects and the ways in which these different communities of practice find ways of coming together and trying to negotiate the kinds of tensions um, that the different interpretations that they bring um, might um, reveal. Um, okay, the second case. I haven't got much longer to go. So, Argentina refusing exhumation in Argentina. So this second example um, is about the conflict that emerged in Argentina over human remains between the um, Argentinian government and um, the government began um, exhuming the victims of the junta in the mid-1980s. Um, and activists, which one branch of the Mothers of the Disappeared, who were campaigning for justice on behalf of their missing family members. Now, it's important that I mention this because the, some of you might know, be familiar with the story of the, the Mothers of the Disappeared, but the group split. Um, and one half of the group was happy to go with the um, proposals that the government was making um, through the Truth Commission that um, there would be reparations to victims and that there would be exhumations and so on. And then there was a, a branch of the mothers who said no, and they were absolutely refusing um, that this would constitute the right kind of justice. I'm really interested in these counter cases, um, and in the work I, I did on, on um, the madres, I was actually initially intending to look at different cases of refusal. I was going to look at South Africa, Northern Ireland and Argentina and put them together. This case actually became way too interesting um, and so I, I, I just concentrated on this. But I was interested in the ways in which um, refusals can tell you perhaps more about the political performance and power of um, these kinds of practices like truth recovery, reparations and so on um, than those who accept these gestures. Right, so it's about looking at the points of resistance and what that can tell, what kind of stories that tells. So I've taken this up again in this paper to look at the question of the refusals um, of, of exhumation in Argentina. And what this example shows, I think, is the ways in which, um, and I can't go fully into detail, so I'll have to skip over quite a bit, um, but the ways in which the state sought to resignify human remains within a particular political narrative about the past. So human remains were being used to tell a political story. Um, and it illustrates the ways in which the mothers were, the refusal of exhumations was actually a refusal of this story. Okay, they didn't agree with the political story about the past that was being told. And secondly, I think what this example shows is how the mothers contested um, the purported humanitarian power um, with which human remains are invested by forensic expertise, so of also challenging an important field faith, if you like. 
Um, and the case is important really because, as I've mentioned, Argentina is the constitutive case um, in the introduction of forensic anthropology to the practice of documenting and investigating the crimes of state, um, and out of which this powerful community set of knowledges, assumptions and practices has flowed. Um, I'm t you know, mentioned earlier Clyde Snow setting up and training of the um, forensic Argentinian forensic anthropology team um, and the ways in which they've been pivoted to um, setting up training and spreading um, these techniques to other post-atrocity scenarios across the Americas and beyond, the DRC for example, the former Yugoslavia and so on. What the example illustrates, I think, is that knowledge about and investment in human remains is structured differently across different interest groups with the consequence that problems and contestations arise in relationship to their significance and their use. What do we do with human remains? Okay. So the background to this is that um, the new democratic government in Argentina in 1983 launched a program of exhumations um, that would evidence the crimes of the previous regime and by implication underscore the right of the new political regime to rule, i.e., you know, these guys are really bad, we're going to do this differently, we're going to show you how bad they are and we're going to demonstrate our commitment to um, certain principles and so on. Um, Alongside that, exhumations were also meant to be a reparative and therapeutic gesture, returning human remains to families for proper burial. Again, you know, nothing wrong with that. That's an important thing to do. Yet, I think whilst the government and the families of the disappeared seem to have a common interest in the recovery of human remains, the madres, at least the group that I'm interested in, contested the political framework of the exhumations because they wanted to shift the focus away from reparation to victims and towards the punishment of perpetrators. So they saw this as a kind of displacement activity, a compensation for the fact that broader um, prosecutions weren't going to take place. Argentina is an interesting case, of course, because there were prosecutions at that, that time, a handful of prosecutions, um, and this, is, this story has continued. That exhumations program is interesting because it was really based on um, principles that coincided with um, the humanitarian and therapeutic claims made by forensic anthropologists working in the field of human rights. Um, but also, the measures, the exhumations, were designed to address the crimes of the past without threatening the stability of the new regime. That is to say, as I said, they compensated in part for Alphonsine's political inability to put all of those responsible on trial. Further, the new political narrative about um, state violence attempted to recognize the previous crimes of the state whilst also apportioning some blame to its opponents. And this emerged in Alphonsine's theory that there were two devils at large in the crimes of the past. And the theory actually went um, some way to vindicate, I think, the Junta's claim that it was fighting a necessarily, necessarily um, dirty war against its citizens. So what's interesting to me is the way in which that political narrative, that there were two devils at work in the crimes of the past, worked its way into the exhumations. In 1984, some of the mothers received telegrams um, from the government asking them to collect their children's remains. Aside here, some of the remains were found not to actually belong to the families to whom they were being returned. Um, but they were being asked to collect the human remains 
along with an indemnity payment um, and a request to sign a certificate that stated that the child had fought with the police and was killed as a consequence. And so there seems to be a condition here placed on the collection of remains that colludes with the junta's claim that a violent response had been warranted. Okay, this was justified. There was a struggle, there was opposition, and so on. And so in response, the mothers, they actually campaigned at many of the exhumation sites um, to the point that um, the government had to stop doing them because they were creating such a stink around and, and so much publicity around the exhumation sites. Um, and they launched, in response to this, um, what they called the No Exhumations, No Posthumous Homage, and No Economic Reparations Campaign. So they were literally saying no to all the measures that um, the government was trying to roll out. What's interesting to me, I think, is that that refusal of exhumation was a refusal of the government's two devils narrative. This is not the story we want to tell about the past, they were saying. And if we you know, agree to the exhumations, if we collect the remains, if we sign this statement, we are signing up to this story that is being told about the past, this political story. That's not the story we want to tell. So I think here what we get is this struggle of human remains, what they're represented, to whom, how they should be dealt with. Um, we see it as a struggle over interpretations of the past and of what constitutes proper justice, exhumation and reparation, or punishment of perpetrators. I'm not saying the two have to be separate, but here they were being conceived as being you know, one or the other in some way. And what's interesting is that this um, protest over the exhumations really became a public crisis in which the state and the madres really struggled to promote hegemony of their own interpretations of the past. And this is a contest that was not simply resolvable by recourse to forensic science, since the forensic work was implicated in this struggle itself. Okay, so they couldn't go, well, let's seek a scientific um, resolution of this problem. Um, and uh, forensics is really kind of implicated in this because it's attending to this humanitarian principle that the remains um, must be returned to the families. Um, the, uh, there's another um, issue here. I've just got a completely illegible note to myself. Let me just um, interpret it. There was another issue. The mothers were saying, oh, that was it. We don't want to know. Not that we don't want to know. We know, actually. We know who's been disappeared. But why are we privileging the naming of the disappeared when we do not know the naming of those who've been killed when we're not naming those who have killed them? So this was another question around, you know, who is being identified here? When we're talking about the truth about the past, again, which kind of truths, which kinds of truths are being told about the past? So we don't want to know who lies there. We want to know the names of who killed them. Um, and, and in a sense, what they're doing there is, is trying to shift the optic of the investigation. Okay, I am going to conclude now. So. I think what these examples show is forensic anthropology at the intersection of law on the one hand and forensic practice in the arena of um, um, political contestation is that forensic interpretations of human remains and the objectives that they claim to serve take their place amongst competing interpretations of the past because the objects 
with which they're professionally invested, human remains, are significant objects of concern and interest to other social groups and are situated within complex network of knowledge, practice and motivation. And as such, I think, interpretations of the dead resist complete and final settlement. And this is against what um, the scientific claims would have us believe. A second point to um, conclude on is that um, the rise in forensic knowledge, as I've mentioned, I think heralds a new materiality in human rights and actually <clears throat> a subtle shift in the epistemologies through which atrocity is arbitrated. And in situating human remains as a source of truth about the past, as a kind of historical corrective, agent of justice and of political change, this is um, a different, I think this represents a different kind of truth regime from the truth regimes that within thinking about transitional justice we've commonly been interested. Testimonial truth re regimes, you know, victims speaking, having voice, this question of having voice and privileging victim voices. So testimonial truth um, regimes and also confessional truth regimes. And I think that these scientific truth regimes are now sort of taking their place alongside these other um, ways of, of speaking about the past. And they, those two have sort of more commonly kind of occupied the centre stage of, of um, the adjudication of past atrocity. Um, but I think, you know, adding this scientific dimension has the consequence of further securing the legal domination of the field, because even if forensics is in tension with, with law, it's harnessed to and subservient to it. Um, and I think if law I think claims to provide the means of establishing a rational, predictable and secure social and political order in the wake of atrocity, then forensics actually promises a scientific basis to that project. And this is something that I think we have to um, be um, alert to. Okay, so I'm going to stop there. I hope that's provided some food for thought. Thank you very much.